Please remain standing for a prayer. We will stand on every promise of your word. Lord, we sung that. And so we pray that we might understand more your word this morning. And whatever age we may be, wherever we may be in our experience, we might begin afresh to stand on every promise of your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'd made a kind of solemn promise to myself that I would not in this sermon make any reference to Sheffield Wednesday but I, I've been provoked there was a lovely lad standing over there with his blades kit on and I knew that was a provocation that I must say something so we, we did win yesterday so I've come fired having watched my favourite team to victory this church was built in 1839 uh, I wasn't around then, uh, and, but we had a problem, or they had a problem in 1939 when they wanted to celebrate the centenary. There was a, a minor matter of a Second World War happening, so Fulwood never did celebrate its centenary, I gather, though I wasn't around here in 1939. But I was in 1989, and we decided then to celebrate the 150th anniversary of this church. And my notes remind me that the series we took to do it was the early chapters of Deuteronomy. Uh, And why we did that was we we hoped and we believed we were sort of on the edge of the promised land. I think it's right to take Scripture in this way. The New Testament says that all these things are written for our learning, and though ultimately they're pointing to Christ, they also point to the church of Jesus Christ and the way he should live. And so, I didn't think we'd been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years doing nothing, Uh, But I did believe that we need to look back with thanksgiving and penitence, and we did that, and to look forward with anticipation to the future. And thank God, God has been blessed. God has blessed us, and in this church we've seen at least some sign of the promised land. But there's still work to be done. There's still land to be possessed. So we turn to this fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. I hope you have it in your Bibles open in front of you. It's a great chapter. And it's very significant that what Moses does when he wants to prepare his people, the series we had in 1989 was entitled People on the Move, so my notes tell me. And in one sense the church is always that, on the move, uh, with God. But it's interesting, what Moses does is takes them back to the laws and covenants, takes them back to the promises of the past. Now, it's a a lovely sort of generation gap in this service this morning. It's lovely to have a a service with a child being baptised and we look on to the future. Paul, last Sunday night, had the temerity to remind the congregation that I was the first great-grandfather to preach in this pulpit within living memory, which I'm sure is true. And uh, as great-grandfather, we actually went to see our great-grandchild in Oxford uh, a few weeks ago. But what made that interesting to me was that after uh, after, uh, the lunchtime that day, and a retired anaesthetist from Oxford uh, came to bring lunch for uh, our grandson and his wife who belonged to the same church and they were caring for them. And this retired anaesthetist reminded me, though I wouldn't have remembered, that he sat in my congregation in Edinburgh in the gallery when he was a student. Now you, you marvel at that kind of... There was obviously my great-grandchild. You can work out the generations. And what a lovely thing about this service is that we are that... And wherever we may be, there is something here from Moses to say to us, if we want to look forward, 
the best way is to look backward. Not all that long ago, I was invited to speak at a conference at Swanwick of the uh, leaders uh, of conference centres up and down the country. Uh, the Oaks was represented and I think Dan was chairing it. That's why probably I got the invitation. And it was all to do with young people. Conference centre about uh, the future of young people particularly. And they'd chosen as their theme the extraordinary thing in Jeremiah 6, 16, stand at the crossroads and look Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. Well, I thought perhaps that's why I've been invited, the ancient paths. But it was a reminder that if you're looking forward and you want to see God bless, the best way is to look backward to the laws of God. And that's what Moses wants to do. These things do not change. The word of God remains supreme. And the challenge here is that, oh, it's just the same God. Did you notice how we ended the reading in verse 24? The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Pretty solemn words. Ah, but that's Old Testament, you say. No, well, I quoted again in Hebrews. Exactly those words are quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. Because our God still is a jealous God. Jealousy is not a bad thing. Every husband should be jealous for the affection of his wife and vice versa. Because we belong to each other. We cannot share something intimate with anyone else. And God is that kind of God. And he wants to say to the people of Israel, if you are going to make a, a go of it in the promised land, if you are going to be the kind of people uh, you want to be, then it will be when you are under my word. For I am a jealous God, and it's there we are this morning. This, we're reminded in this passage, of course, that the word of God is sovereign. Some pretty solemn words in verse 2 and 3 about not adding to it, not subtracting from it. And that comes out again in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount about the word of God. Just occasionally, I love the old version because of some lovely words. Those who remember the authorised version will know it talks in Matthew 5 about the word of God where it says... Not a jot or a tittle will go away from it. I do love the jot and the tittle. Do you, do you know what a tittle is? No, it's not what you do. You're not tittle. Tittle. The tittle is, is a, little, a little hook on a Hebrew letter that makes it different from another. And the jot is the smallest word in the Hebrew letter, the Hebrew alphabet, the yoles. And what our Lord is saying is the law of God is so desperately important that every word is sacred. And isn't that why the book of Deuteronomy is quoted over 80 times in the New Testament? Isn't that why Jesus facing the temptation of Satan in the wilderness quoted every time when he was tempted from the book of Deuteronomy, which means the second law. Now for a few minutes this morning, think of this church and its challenge and opportunity. It's great. 150 young people and leaders away this weekend. Think of all the potential there. Think of Harry being baptised. Think of all the children over there. Think of the future. You know that our nation's at all sorts of crossroads. It doesn't seem all that long ago that I remember we said about England, or was it Britain, uh, that we are a nation of one book, and that book, the Bible. Would you really believe that's even remotely true nowadays? I sometimes watch University Challenge. I'm always 
I'm always pleased if I can answer about three questions in the course of the half hour. I, I generally do. All this great erudition. And then suddenly they get a question from the Bible and they haven't a clue. And I mutter to them, you bright people, my grandchild knows the answer to that question. Because you see, we're a biblically illiterate world. Well, that doesn't matter in one sense. <clears throat> but it does matter if we're going to be the kind of nation God wants us to be, the kind of people God wants us to be if we're going to possess the land. Two thoughts. There's a word to be trusted and as a word to be obeyed. I did toy with the idea of bringing out from the shelves the golden oldie hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. There are four of us in the congregation who would know it, uh, but I decided that it's probably best left on the shelf. But I am going to take those two thoughts. Trust, obey. A word to be trusted? Why? A word to be obeyed? Why? And that's the promise they've made for their child today. That's the promise we make every time we come to, to church. This is the word of the Lord we say. Do we believe it? Right. A word to be trusted first, its source. Moses said in verse 1 that they are the decrees and laws I'm teaching you. But then he points out in verse 14, it's the Lord directed me. These are God's word and I am teaching you. There was no form. That comes twice in verse 12 and 15. No visual representation of God. No idea what God looks like. No idea what Jesus looked like. Have you? Not a clue. Was he tall? Was he thin? Was he fat? Not a clue. He was a Hebrew of that age, but that's all I know. And it doesn't matter. What I do know is what he said. What I do know is what God said. And there came a great moment in the life of Jesus when Jesus, risen from the dead, meets an old friend, Mary Magdalene. Remember the story? Mary Magdalene had known Jesus for a long time. She'd been greatly helped by him, her life had been changed, and she saw him face to face and thought he was the gardener. After all, he died. Couldn't be Jesus. He was, she was quite sure she looked at him, the gardener. And what did Jesus do? He simply said, Mary. And once he spoke, she knew. Oh, I do thank God for that. I don't know what Jesus looked like. I shall never see him till that day in glory when I shall see him by his grace. But I do know what he said. And the challenge is, if I believe the source of God's word is God himself, then these are the maker's instructions. And I avoid them at my peril. I don't know about you, the, the year to me has a kind of pattern. And one of the great patterns in this church is the next Sunday night, all these young people are back for the... Uh, for their great Thanksgiving service after their week away. It's always a great occasion. Sunday night service, when the house party comes back, is always a great occasion. For me, once that's passed, it's next stop Christmas. We'll be having notices about the carol service, and we shall all be getting organised for Christmas. That's how it goes. And dear younger couples, you, you, you still have it. It's, it's gone in my life, thankfully. These long looking at presents, the, the, the solemn hour by hour opening of presents. I would snooze through most of it, but occasionally come to life again. And there was always that moment, always that moment when somebody had decided to buy our children some kit to put together. I knew there was trouble ahead. <laughs> my, the child would look at the instructions and, and cry, not able to do it. 
I would go to the instructions and say with great indignity, how on earth, why can't they read, why can't they write proper English? And the clue what it all means. And I would throw the thing down and Margaret would do it. That's how it went. (laughs) That's how it went in our house. But you see, it did rather matter that the maker's instructions, if you want the kit to work, you've got to obey the maker's instructions. I may not like them. Listen, friends, we live in God's world. You may think you could do it better, but you can't. You're in his world. And if you think you know better than God and you don't need his instructions, you put them on one side, you forget them, then you'll make a mess of God's world and make a mess of your life. And we are rapidly doing it. Its source is God, the maker's instructions. Its sacredness, because of that, verse 10, we are called to fear the Lord. We are called to revere him. A remarkable picture about God as being in verse 11. Note that. The picture, they're looking back to when Sinai happened, when the law of God was given. And although it often speaks about it being fire and light, what does it say in verse 11? Black clouds, deep darkness. There's a kind of solemnity about the moment. We cannot fathom the greatness of God. It's very sacred. And the Old Testament, Isaiah particularly, talks about trembling at God's word. Now, if you think again, this is Old Testament. Come on, Philip, move on. Okay. The very last words of Scripture. The very last words of Scripture, apart from the blessing at the end. I've lost my notes. Paul, could you? It won't make a lot of difference, but I would be glad to have it. Oh dear. End of Revelation comes these words. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life. That's solemn. And we live in a world where people want to add to the word of God. Yes, okay, that's what the Bible says, but we know better. We live in the 21st century. We know more than they ever knew. So we add our own words. Or we take away. These things aren't relevant in our permissive age, and so we ignore them. If you have a Bible open, look at verse 3 and 4 and ask yourself, what does it mean? You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed all who followed the Baal of Peor. Verse 3. Verse 4. But all of you who hold fast to the Lord our God are still alive. What did happen at Baal Peor? Well, if you want, you can read Numbers 25. But it's not nice reading. It was the last throw of the dice by a man called Balaam. Balaam had been invited to curse the people of God. But he couldn't. Because God said to him, you can't curse my people. So he couldn't. But Balaam, because he wanted to earn his keep, He was a prophet who liked to get money. Balaam uh, said, well, I'll tell you what. You just let your women loose amongst the men of Israel. Forget the morality and you'll win. And Israel was destroyed because immorality and idolatry killed them. Not cursed by God. Just thinking they knew better than God. And in the book of Romans chapter 1, there's a reminder that once we do change the moral laws of God, we do it to our peril, a nation will perish, a church will perish, and you know how near we are to those things happening 
in the day and age in which we live, if you read anything at all. And so the sacredness of God's word is a reminder to us that that's the word to be trusted. It's source, it's sacredness, but thirdly, it's responsibility, it's relationship, sorry. These are the Ten Commandments that are given to us, and they are a recipe for civilised life in the Promised Land. If you're going to go be successful in the Promised Land, say these verses, then you must follow the Word of God. And so the Ten Commandments are there, verse 13, they're the covenant. He declared to you his covenant, his promise. We've made promises today at baptism. Very important promises. I don't know how many children I baptised during my 29 years here. Lots and lots of them. I sometimes meet people looking very mature who tell me you baptised me many years ago. Well, I baptised lots of children and I would always try to remind parents and godparents you've made some pretty solemn promises. Now the lovely thing is God's made a promise too. He's made a promise and baptism speaks of it. The, The cleansing of the water. We make promises at communion. And again, it's a symbol of God's giving of himself, the the bread and and the wine, the giving of his life, symbolized. So he makes his promise, but the Ten Commandments are the terms of the covenant. We used to have uh, the Ten Commandments at the back of church there in the old days. They were right at the back of church. And one day, uh, I I was brought into church by a policeman who'd, who'd apprehended a lad at the back of church just taking money out of the collection plate. And the policeman told me, he was a bright lad, this. When I asked him, what were you doing? He said, I was just reading the Ten Commandments, sir. Which I thought was rather good. As he was reading the Ten Commandments, he was just stealing. You know, you shall not steal, but here we go. The Ten Commandments there are to remind us, not just of our failures, but of a relationship. A covenant relationship. Very special. And you may have noticed uh, that Moses speaks here in verse 7 and 8 about the greatness of a nation, not because it was politically important. Israel was never politically important. Not because it was prosperous, it was occasionally prosperous, but not normally so. But it was a special nation because it was the people of God and the people of God had a very special responsibility. Now, the challenge is that we live in the New Testament age We are meant to be, if we're part of the church, the people of God, living in the midst of a world like they did, which was pagan. Our nation becomes increasingly pagan. Christianity is being pushed to the extremes. There is a crime now called Islamophobia, and nobody likes that. Nobody's yet invented Christianophobia, but it'll be coming. Because, you see, we are being pushed pushed to the extremes. So it's even more important that we should demonstrate, if we are Christians, of a unique relationship which we want to offer to other people. Now, it, it was hard to keep the commands of the Old Testament. Please, I believe it's even harder to keep the commands of the New Testament. When I hear Jesus taking the commands of the Old Testament, you shall not commit adultery, and putting it into different words in the New Testament, that's more difficult. But at the same time, there's the most wonderful promise in the New Testament. Can I just quote you a little bit of doggerel? Here's a bit of doggerel. To run and work the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Here's the line. But better news the gospel brings It bids me fly and gives me wings. I love that. 
It is harder to follow the way of Christ, but we've got the wings to do it. We've got the strength to do it, if we're Christians. We've got the enabling of the Spirit. No, Harry's parents can't do it in their own strength, but by God's grace they can. And if we face the tremendous challenge of being Christians in our pagan society, it's impossible. But by his grace we can. It's relationships and it's responsibility. That's all this about the next generation that I've just quipped about already. Great-grandchildren, children, grandchildren, making sure we move it on. It comes out in this passage that we have to teach their children, verse uh, 9, teach them to, to your children and to their children after them. If you want a little puzzle, read the first seven verses of Psalm 78. Nobody will, but I would like to throw this one out. Read the first seven verses of Psalm 78, where it talks about the laws which our forefathers knew, which they passed on to us, which we must pass on to our children, so that they might teach them to their children yet unborn, so that they might teach it to their children. You see the picture? Making sure... Friends, in my ministry now, I have great joys, great responsibilities. I rarely preach in a congregation this size, very rarely. Uh, And I go around very willingly and very happily to congregations of any size. I tell you, friends, I go to some where there isn't a child in sight. There isn't a teenager. I haven't been a teenager in the congregation for months and years. And my heart bleeds. The future, there's, there's nothing there. Oh, of course they matter, and I will give of my best to them. But the future... Now, in this congregation, God has... He's been blessed. He's blessed you. Think of what he must expect from you in responsibility to make sure that these truths we do pass on so that the children are being taught the Word of God, not just just enjoying themselves. They do enjoy themselves. 150 young people and leaders are aware of house parties. It's been going on since our children were kids. And now our daughter's a grandmother. And there was a house party in those days. And when you think of it, the prospect of seeing all these young people grow up, cherish it, thank God for it, pray for it, support it, and pray that somehow, by God's grace, we might reach out to others. A word to be trusted. Source, sacredness, relationship. Responsibility. Much more briefly, a word to be obeyed. Three simple commands. Know it, verse 1. Hear now, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Again in verse 10, don't forget it. Remember it. I'm grateful. I had a, I'm a single parent child, spiritually. My dad didn't make any profession. My mother was a, a lovely Christian lady, and she was very wise. She would often say to me, I'm feeling tired tonight, Philip. Will you read the Bible to me? Very subtle, that was, to make sure I read the Bible. So I read it to her. So I've been used to reading the Bible since I was a little lad. I've been taught it. Our son, amongst other things, is a chaplain at a school in, secondary school in Bradford. And the story he tells about how few, how few of these kids have the slightest connection with any church. The estate they serve, has no church left on it. It's a bigger parish than Fullwood. Every church is closed down. Not a single church left. Oh, it's the parish church outside somewhere, but nobody on that estate. Now, this is the generation we're facing. So it's very important that we who do have the word of God, we know it. Please teach your children. Please encourage them. 
to learn it. It's the most important thing. What is your desire for these children? I won't ask Harry's parents what is their greatest desire. But I ask you all, when you think about your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, is your greatest desire that they get on in life? There's an old Puritan of many centuries ago who said the people his day were more concerned about getting on than getting up. And I fear that's where we are. Is that what you hope for your children? They'll do well. Great university degrees, or even that might not mean much these days. Good jobs, plenty of money, safety, security. Or do you want, above all, that they might know the word of God and respond to it and come to life? I hope you want that. Because they can only follow it if they know it. Jesus once said these words in John 15. If you abide in me and you expect it to say, I abide in you. But it doesn't. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then all the things will follow. That is, if I want to have a relationship, it's through the word of God that I know it. And if I know it, then secondly, I will follow it. And that's what these, this, this chapter is all about. The importance of following the way of God. Now, there are many things that we don't know. Folk who heard me preach in this church before, some of you had rather a lot. We'll know one of my favourite verses is Deuteronomy 29, 29. You've probably forgotten. But let me tell you, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And he doesn't say it there, but he sort of leaves them there. The older I get, the more I wonder what on earth is heaven going to be like. The nearer I get to it, I'm not any less sure of it, but what will it be like? How will I meet people in Christ? How? They're secret things. I trust him for those things I don't understand. But it goes on. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We can leave them there. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. That we may follow all the words of this law. And there's enough in scripture to know that we can follow. Show it. Know it. Follow it. Finally show it. Let me finish on this picture. That picture in verses 6 to 8 of, of a church, of a people, a church if you like, a nation that knows the word of God and seeks to follow. And that nation has a wonderful privilege. It has a God to whom they can pray. And we even more. Now did you, I did, did you say you were going to church this morning? And we always talk about that. That's quite wrong. You don't go to church. You are the church and you come to a building which is the church. There were times when I was living at the vicarage and we'd have somebody come and see us and they'd say, Philip, will you please show us your church? We've never been. And being pedantic, I'd say, I'm terribly sorry, it's not there at the moment. That would cause <laughs> inconvenience. But then I would go and say, but there's a building if you want to show it you. But, uh, because it isn't, you see. It only happens on Sunday. That's when we are the church. And the church has this unique responsibility to have a relationship that we are meant to show to the world. Let me say this to you. It is, I believe, the way in which our nation will yet again begin to see the things of God and we trust respond. I long for, pray for revival while I'm still alive. And I long for it to happen. And here I think is the key. It says in these verses more than once, we never saw his form, verse 18. You never saw what God was like, verse 15. You saw no form. Now that 
is quoted twice by the Apostle John in the New Testament. Nobody has ever seen God. John 1.18, the Gospel, John says, nobody's ever seen God, the only begotten Son of the Father. He has made him known. I understand that. Nobody's seen God, but Jesus' Son has shown him to the world. Fine. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 12, the same man starts exactly the same way, nobody's ever seen God. Ah, how's it go on? If we love one another, God lives in us. That, I think, is tremendous. You see, nobody can see God. They can't see Jesus because he's not here. But they do see Christian people. They do see this church. And if we demonstrate that we love one another, oh, we don't always agree. We're not always lovey-dovey with everybody. But we, we love one another. We belong to each other. If they see that, then they see God. They see Jesus. That should be our prayer. I used to get asked from time to time, you know, I... I'm a great interdenominationalist. I've been sort of having withdrawal symptoms, not been to Keswick this year for the first time in 26 years. Uh, I'm a great sort of interdenominational, but I am Church of England, and, and always it's the church in which I was born, the church in which I found Christ, the church in which I was ordained, and it means a lot to me. But I would sometimes be asked, you know, kind of, you go around denominations, why Church of England? I used to say there were three things that held me there. I do think actually having bishops is better than having committees, so I don't always agree with the bishops, but the idea seems to me to be right. Secondly, I love the prayer book, and the, not necessarily the words. We must modernise the words. We must make the words of God relevant for today. The Bible doesn't say because we believe God's word doesn't change, we shouldn't change the language of it. They won't change the language of the Koran, but we would change ours in order to be understood today by all means. But I love the pattern of the prayer book, which we try to keep with confession, with absolution, with the word of God at its heart. I love that kind of liturgy. That's why I was Church of England. But most of all, because I was a parish man. Now, what does that mean? Do you know the word parish in Greek is the word that's used in the New Testament for strangers? Paroikioi. That is... You're strangers and pilgrims. And the church is a group of strangers who are living in this world so that the parish church stands in every locality to say to the world, there is another world. And I love that. Oh, it's beginning to die for all sorts of reasons. But I love the message of it. And I simply want to say to you, as I say to myself afresh today, don't be afraid to be a stranger in the world. You always will be if you're a Christian. It was never different. But particularly today, how we need Christians who will follow God's word, who will possess, his, possess our possessions, and who will reflect something of the truth at all costs and the love at all times of Christ. Let me pray with you. Father, we do thank you for your word given to us, still with us. Many of us thank you that we've been able to hear it and to respond to it. 
and with all our imperfections to follow it. We pray that there will be those today even who will see the importance of it and turn to you in repentance and faith. We dare to pray for all these young people at House Party and all these children across the road here that they might come to know and love you and love your word. And so, Father, in your mercy, help us to be your people living in your world, in your way, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.